for me the the real like value and like the the thing that like keeps me in love with the music is like the other musicians that I've met and like they keep bringing me back and they keep inspiring me and when I think I'm like when I think I've had it and I'm toasted I go see Chris play or I see Mike Servito play or I see you know you name it some some other person from New York or I hear somebody from here's mix or something you know something and it just keeps it keeps pulling me back and I feel like those people that I've met and the music that they've made it's like this weird infinite uh, source of inspiration and that's been like the real prize Hi, this is Jack Callahan, and you're listening to 400 Floor. You just heard from Chris Sharon and Quinn Taylor, two old friends better known by their monikers Goucher Lustwork and Young Male. The two RISD grads met in Providence in the mid-2000s and bonded over their shared love of club music, teaming up to throw parties in Providence and eventually in New York, where Quinn started his white material label, which put out Chris's first record as Goucher Lustwork. Both began touring the world and have not really stopped for the last decade. This episode has been edited from the full conversation, which is available at 400floor.com. That's the number 400 and the word floor.com. This is 400 Floor. Let's go on and get into it. Well, thank you guys for being on. Why don't we start with you, Quinn? I do my perfunctory question of what was your early experience with music and how did you uh you know it's this is a pretty big wide ranging question but like how did you come to find that this is what you wanted to do how did you come to find like the scene of people musicians or whatever and yeah but yeah and then what what was your early experience with that like friend family friends whatever i think there's two two or three little moments that sort of are like the big ones. One was uh, sitting in the backseat of my mom's car, her playing tapes of Depeche Mode, Violator, Cybotron, Clear. Wow. And um, well, she's from Detroit. So Ah, she has like a little history. Yeah. And then um, Kraftwerk, Autobahn. And apparently, I, I don't remember it, but I guess I used to like sing along to all these albums. I do remember like singing along to the Depeche Mode album. That was, I was a little older, so there was that. That's like a, a big formative memory, uh, being in the car and listening to music. I think maybe for like a lot of people, that's like a it just sounds so good, and you're moving, and it feels like. Um, and then another one was. Um, in high school, I had a friend who was, his parents were really invested in letting him like explore his creative urges. And he lived in the shed behind their house and had, there was like a bunch of guitars and drums. And so a bunch of us would just sort of always congregate there and we're like learning to work on music together as a group. And like exploring whatever, you know, like elements of noise and pop and all those, you know, like we made rap tracks, we made rock, we made, it was just sort of like a, like, I think we were all just obsessed with music in general and then coming together and finding each other. They were sort of already a little crew and I'm not even sure like how I ended up meeting them. It was sort of like random, but that was like a big, like a formative thing. And then the third one I would say is going to a party. This is later again, but a, like a pretty formative mo- uh, moment going to a party that our Chris and I's mutual friend, Morgan Lewis uh, and Chris and, and Alvin Aronson were doing called pop. It was Providence. It was in a, a small club that was um, a club called energy and I used to break dance at that club. It was uh, no way. Oh my god! Yeah, okay, yeah. we got to I'm putting a pin in the, these things too, and I want to. I gotta. I have a couple questions <laughs> to ask you after this. <laughs> but so th- I would say those three were like major moments. There's others too. You know, like 
quickly I could just mention seeing Lightning Bolt play in um, in a parking lot in the middle of winter in Providence. That was a really inspiring moment that sort of like stuck in my head. Do you remember where the parking lot was? Yeah, I lived in a building called Monahasset Mill, and it was right across the street from Fort Thunder. And so it was in the parking lot in the middle of winter, and they were surrounded by cars shining their lights on them. And Chippendale was, Brian Chippendale, who plays drums for the band, was like in his underwear in the middle of winter. Everyone else is in full jackets and freezing. And He's got the face um, mask on or whatever. Exactly, yeah. I mean, there's other little things, but those are, I feel like those led to other bigger chapters. Did you play in like in bands, in like punk bands before you started getting into weirder stuff? Or like, what was your trajectory of then like starting to play music like out and like, you know, shows or whatever? Um, yeah, bands. Uh, high school, it was like a number of different little bands. Again, you know, what with that group of people where we're playing in like a shed. Uh, always bands, little weird little tours that were sort of unsuccessful, like cars breaking down and um, until, and then it was, it started to become music projects where it would be myself only, you know, after watching different noise musicians performing solo, I was like, I think maybe I just want to try doing this alone or with one other person, you know, but still sort of the band idea where you're maybe going to perform with one person, you know, one person does the drums and the since and one person does vocals and you know saxophone or whatever you know but it was always i guess it's kind of traditional in that sense do you remember the first time when you sort of like discovered that you know because providence has like a very uh venerated legendary diy music and arts scene of course you know do you remember like first hearing about that or like going to the first show or seeing that or whatever like there's that lightning bolt show was that like the first show of that kind that you saw no i i used to go to fort thunder halloween parties they were kind of legendary i mean that was that was going on like when i was a freshman at rizzi and i i remember like halloween was a big deal uh you go over to Onlyville and you go to Fort Thunder and like, there's like a guy wearing diapers and like, you know, some, some dude in like a full costume. that's like a bull, you know, with like a real bull head or so. And you're just, you know, you're 18 or something and you kind of can't believe what you're seeing. And it's all these older weird people and, you know, some lady who's like swallowing fire and, you know, it's like, Holy shit. What is, what is this? That was for me the the first introduction was going to Fort Thunder for those big Halloween like haunted house slash wrestling match slash show. I went to Rizzi, got the BFA, yeah, four years. <laughs> Growing up, my mom was always, my mom's like a, an illustrator and was always doing, you know, when I would get home from school, my mom's always like working on a painting or something, some type of illustration, you know, it would just always be like, I get home, my mom's working till 10, 11 at night on whatever thing that, she, you know, she's doing. And so I'm seeing my mom make this stuff and I'm thinking like, Oh, I want to be an artist too. You know, you see your parents doing something and you, you respond and I'd heard music and I just thought that that was like a cool way to exist. But I was never planning on going to college. I don't think any of my friends went and, um, my mom kept pushing, like, you got to go to college. You got to go to college. And, um, at a certain point I went to pre-college at RISD. I think my mom was like, if you go, you know, like you'll get an idea of what it could be like. And so I went and it was, you know, it's amazing to meet other people that are interested in sick shit and you're like seeing it and inspired and you're like, oh, I want to make dance music or I want to make noise or whatever the hell, you know. Yeah. So I didn't even really want to go. I think I just, 
I felt pushed into going, I think I would have like probably just ended up not really leaving or doing much if I hadn't gone. So I'm really thankful that my mom like pushed me into it and she'd been sort of like saving up forever to like get me to go to college. And it just sort of happened as like a byproduct of my upbringing, I would say like seeing my mom as an artist working and like I had to do some drawings to get in and, you know, it's also, it was so different then compared to what it is like now and what it was like along the way. It's changed so drastically. Like when, when I was there, it was like very weird and way less expensive to go. And so the type of people that were there, you know, I think Brian Chippendale or Matt Brinkman or some, maybe it was Jim Drain. I can't totally remember they were all seniors, I think, when I was a freshman. So I was, I'm seeing these like really weird guys walking around and amazing. You know, I mean, wondering the force field dude is exactly like some of the fucking freakiest people on earth. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so as soon as I graduated, I was drywalling ceilings and I was repointing brick in both in mill buildings in the mill buildings that I was living in, basically. And I met Christopher CF, Christopher Forbes. We were drywalling a ceiling together. And I had been like drawing comics here and there. This is, you know, the year, first year out of school. And I was also working at a bakery. So I'm working at a bakery. I'm drywalling ceilings. I'm repointing brick. And I meet this guy that I thought was like, I'm like, this guy sucks. He's like, he's so full of himself. <laughs> he's such a, and, you know, and then they, they assigned us, he and I, to specifically drywall these ceilings that are 30 feet up. And we had to work together to figure out how to raise up sheets five-eighths inch thick, which is like extra thick drywall, up these scaffoldings together. We figured out this way to rig it, to like hoist it up. And one person would hold the sheet and sort of lift it up and then climb the side of the rigging, get it up. And then we'd hold it above our heads. One of us would hold it on our head and drill. And the other one was holding the other side and we would get these sheets on the ceiling and it was an entire winter and gradually, you know, we're sort of becoming friends. But this moment happened where I'd realized that I had seen his comics. I'd written to him, told him I loved his comics. And then I'm like, Oh, this guy that I thought I hated, I actually really love. He's amazing. (laughs) Totally. Um, So that was like sort of a big moment. I was just sort of doing that type of work for a while trying to make things, trying to draw comics, being influenced by Christopher, by Matt Brinkman, by uh, Chippendale, all, you know, Paper Rodeo, uh, Paper Rad, seeing, like, stuff from Massachusetts that was going on, just sort of emulating what I was seeing and trying to add in little bits of me and then then sort of re-getting into music in a different way where I'm like, I could do whatever, you know, like, I can kick a guitar or I can like play drums, you know, whatever it is that makes sense. And so here and there, there was little moments where I would do a drawing or make some little kind of nothing that exciting, but it was just sort of like keeping me going. And I felt inspired here and there. I was hearing about club nights and I would go, I was the only one that in the noise scene that was like going to these nights and I didn't know it then, but it was Morgan Lewis and it was like Chris and it was, and, but we didn't meet. I was just going there to dance. And this was the same club that I used to break dance at that now I'm just going to because I sort of, I'm not even sure how, but I developed this love for club music. And so at the same time, I'm going to noise shows. I'm sort of emulating that. I'm, I'm seeing these parties that, Chris is DJing that Morgan Lewis is DJing being inspired by that and working through a series of jobs. You know, I worked then next at like a, a small metal shop that also had a prototyping department. So I was working, doing rapid prototyping, doing sculpting, casting, molding for like Hasbro, um, still making very little money and like really, it was a, a brutal existence, like no heat, no hot water, you know, I could pay rent and I could, I had enough money to like occasionally do fun things, but it still felt fun and transgressive, transgressive. And I could still go to shows and, um, meet all these interesting people or go to party at this club. 
And once in a while I could find like a little crew of people that would go. So, you know, I'm bringing this group of people that they were interested, but I think that they were interested in this almost like ironic way, like, Oh, you know, I'm bringing Ali Denig and (laughs) a little crew of people. But I think that they were like pretty quick to be interested in it. And they're, it's funny because they're seeing Morgan and Chris and under like seeing this whole other world. And, so that was, it was sort of like that, you know, where I'm, was caught in between a few different worlds and never, never fully fit into any of them. You know, I just kind of, I was always on my own tip, like the noise people never, I was, I wasn't noise enough. I wasn't like a dick enough. You know, I'm not like starting fights. I'm not making enough comics. I'm not, it was just never like, I was never accepted in any way except by a few people, you know, like, but I was always at all the different shows and, and just working and living in squalor, really. <laughs> That's the Providence <laughs> way, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was cool. Well, why don't we switch over now to you, Chris, and we start over and I, um, yeah, same question, like, what are some of your early experiences with music and like, what was your kind of journey of like, getting more into music, playing music as you got older? Um, I know you, you grew up in Cleveland and then eventually you moved to Providence and then, uh... Yeah. So yeah, what's that? What's your like journey with all that? Let's see. I also do remember like fondly driving in the car, listening to the radio. That was definitely like huge. And uh, a lot of that was like jazz, smooth jazz, and like the 80s kind of quiet storm stuff and like NPR too. So like kind of easier listening stuff. And then. I don't know. I think I got really into skateboarding and through watching skateboard videos, I got into like all types of genres of music, like in all, I mean, it was like a kind of a, a, a history lesson in a lot of ways. Cause I never heard a lot of bands until I saw like, you know, especially a lot of like rock bands and stuff. So there's that. And also I was kind of a nerd, like tech computer nerd. So I liked drum and bass. I liked, like electronica and I like a uh, windows computer growing up like a family computer. And uh, we had like cakewalk studio on there. That was like the first doll I think that I used. And, and from there I went to like acid and fruity loops and reason. And, and then by then I was like super into just production in general and then through skateboarding, I feel like I kind of veered towards like the DIY scene, the punk scene uh, in Cleveland, just because just by proximity, all this, all the funny, like all the skate parks and skate shops are on the west side, and all the like music venues are on the west side too. Lakewood, yeah, Lakewood, yeah. And growing up, actually, I, I mean, I grew up in Cleveland Heights. And uh, there's a, a music venue right down the street from my house uh, called Grog Shop. Of course, Grog Shop. I've, I did sound there one time with for a band on yeah. years ago. Grog Shop, like that place was just a stone's throw away from me. So I saw so many art, like so many artists came through there. Like when I was, you know, by the time I was like, I don't even know how old you had to be to get in. But uh, I was like 16, 17 going to these shows, seeing, like, I saw Boredoms. Amazing. Hell yeah. I saw, like, a bunch of rap, different rappers, like, Anti-Pop Consortium. I saw, like, Prefuse 73. I saw Junior oh, Boys wow. there. Wow. Amazing. Dude, that's great. I saw... I could keep going. I saw Please. Diplo there. Wow. I saw Diplo. <laughs> he, Diplo was opening for Prefuse 73. It's oh, crazy. dude. Amazing. I mean, like, that's there's, like, Black Dice and... Even Lightning, I think I was aware of Lightning Bolt before I went to RISD, 
but I had never seen them yet. So I was still like un- aware of like Providence and like what was going on over there before I went. And that was definitely like an exciting aspect moving to Providence. Um, just seeing something a little more tight knit and like, in like local and raw and like Providence is bikeable, super bikeable. So you don't really need to, Cleveland is sort of hard to get people together in Cleveland because it's so spread out. So Providence felt really cool and like unique in that way. And you mentioned like Mars, Mars gas. I went to a party there once. This was like 2005, I think. And I think me and Quinn realized that we were both at this party because there was like ice all over the, the like street and people were sliding on ice outside very dangerous but uh what was i about to say yeah i don't know it was it was uh it was a cool time was uh now that's class open when you were in cleveland or that open yeah now that's class was was around they used to have like a a skate park like a mini skate park inside of there for a little while i think andrew reynolds skated that once at one point <laughs> Yeah, now it's class sort of, but it really bloomed like, you know, once I started actually DJing it, it really, you know, there was a lot of cool like dance, more like dancey events there in its later years. But like, yeah, so let's see, I'm in Providence, um, I'm going to RISD and, and everything's really centered around MySpace around this time. So like... Even the band I was in with, with actually with DJ Richard, he was in this band, uh, me and like a few other people, uh, we had a MySpace page. And so everything was used to like promote shows or whatever, like people would post on a bulletin and, uh, and that was the, the online promotion. And so Morgan Lewis reached out to me through MySpace. Like he had seen that I had a, a some kind of like blog house really I, I i think it was digitalism maybe or like uh or like boys noise but it was like a, a player on my page and he's like yo you're from providence uh you have good music taste do you dj do you want to dj my night and it, he was just really looking for more people to come fill fill in for him because he was doing every pop was uh t- tuesday nights like every tuesday which is nuts to think about. Like that's so much, that's so busy. So that's how he found out about, that's how he found me. That's how he found Alvin. And that's how I met Alvin was, was DJing at pop. And then through that, I like learned how to use Serato and, you know, that was like the beginning of my DJ journey. Basically was that night, those Tuesday nights. So you went to RISD and what, what did you study at RISD? Graphic design. I mostly did it because that was like good. It was a good department there to go into Um, because I've been more interested in like film and stuff before, but I just decided to hedge, hedge (laughs) in the design. And I don't know. I was still hanging out with all the like fine arts kids. There was, there was kind of a weird divide at RISD where the design kids sort of stayed to themselves, but I was more into the fine arts crowd and uh, just sort of doing my own thing, not really giving a shit about design at the end of the day. Like, yeah. <laughs> but that's funny. So you were doing, and you and you graduated. You got your 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 degree in design. Too. Yeah, graduated, and that's this is kind of where me and Quinn's story converges because uh, we have a friend in common, Greg Fong, who uh, who I had been, uh, you know, we were in the same class, and he had been living with Quinn. And he had, he was moving out once he graduated, so I like wanted to take his spot. Um, and this was in not quite Oneyville, but like South Providence. And so that's where I went after I graduated. We I just moved in with Quinn, and I was just free freelancing. Had a couple connections, but yeah, just trying to like mostly <laughs> make my own time and just figure my own shit out. You know, technically. I think we had met, not realizing we had met a few times. I think you were at the. Actually, you might have left when I was met when I was talking about this at a Mars Gas thing. Like okay, there was a yeah. party with the yeah. ice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. that was a, a big moment. 
But like all that, yeah, like the Providence vibe, I was really like felt, I never felt totally like part of it, but um, a lot of it reminded me of Cleveland. Like just like Onyville itself feels like Cleveland. It's just got this like rusty, like crusty. Yeah, post-industrial, definitely. Yeah. Old Americana kind of shit. Yeah, it just felt like, yeah, it felt uh, real to me. I don't know. You were DJing this night. Were you still actively making music or like? I was trying to put out, like I had my, like around this MySpace time, I was putting stuff up on MySpace and like I had another EJ name and also the, the, the night pop sort of evolved into a different night once we like changed clubs. So there's sort of like a feeling of like, oh, this this could like sort of be a thing. Like I could be a DJ, local Providence DJ producer or whatever, um, like DJing in Boston a few times. But like this is like pre-SoundCloud too. So it, in a lot of ways, it was just like it felt real hobbyish that at that time. Like it wasn't it was hard to like turn something into something real like no vinyl you know no i had no idea how to put out a vinyl or anything i was just like burning cds and whatnot so yeah everything felt still like like i'm learning still you know learning about sound and like like the at the time it was like getting posted on the a certain blog was kind of the, the top you know there was like fluo kids palms out sounds uh Asian Dan, who I think is still doing stuff now. But, like, yeah, there were, like, these big... It was all about blogs, and there was just no money exchange. There was just, like... It was really weird, awkward time. Um, kind of glad that I didn't, like, succeed in that time, because it just wasn't <laughs> yeah, that's a, If that was where your, like, success stemmed from, yeah, it'd be probably a, a different a different trajectory than you you've taken today for sure but like a lot of like in what i guess you would categorize it as indie sleaze i feel like is what brought everyone together like that kind of disco new wave post electro clash like yeah So now it kind of brings the two of you together and like you guys were living together and met and like, did you, how did you start getting into actually like producing dance music being like, oh, this is club music. I'm like, this is actually really what I'm interested in now. Um, I, I was in a band with this girl uh, who's like a classically trained pianist and I was learning to like use synthesizers like in a really simple way where I'm just kind of like playing, you know, a repetitive four note pattern or whatever, you know, baseline or, and I had like a beatbox style drum machine where you would, it was a CR 78 at the time, uh, you know, I, I think I got it for 150 bucks or something at a pawn shop. It wasn't, no, I still have things, it. Yeah, those things are worth a lot now, I think. Yeah, I think they're a couple of grand now. It's in a box in my closet somewhere. So, And we were sort of, we were into New Order and we were into Ashray Fax, which was like a big band from North Carolina that a lot of people were influenced by in Providence. Into just that sort of sound of synth and drum machine, maybe some vocals, and then from there, you know, that was how I learned to, to produce using GarageBand. And then I went from there to learning the very basics of how to use Logic and to record. And it was such a struggle. And I was sort of emulating like Giorgio Moroder stuff. And there were other bands. There was like another, there was like a producer named Lifelike that who's I was really into his music. I was really into uh, Eric Prids, 
Prida oh, stuff. Oh yeah, of course. I was really into the Outsiders. Outside, yeah, I think. F- or uh, what's the what's the big the big call hit? On big me. hit? Call on me. Oh, call on me. Call on me. The Steve Winwood sample. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I was just trying to make, I think, my version of it, you know, really sort of like ripping it off and not really wanting to, but that was just, you know, I was just listening to it and that was sort of all I knew. And, you know, trying to make it fun and trying to just make a few tracks that sounded good enough that maybe my friends could play them in the club. Actually, I didn't even really understand that that could happen. That was something that where I, I finished one or two tracks and I played like a show at Matthewson street and the crowd liked it. And I felt amazing. And I think then I recorded it. And then after I recorded it, I gave it to Chris and Morgan and Alvin at the night. I brought a CD to their party. And I think Chris played it and it was like you know such a at like that like that night at pop that moment yeah like five minutes later i think wow amazing just cue it up and check it out for a second and then be like i think so i think so that's cool that's i can't believe you did it that's legendary like handing larry levan like a or handing (laughs) david mancuso the the arthur russell record and him playing right that type of thing you know and i i think that that's how i sort of got into it and I think that it was Greg Fong who said, you know, you got to record this and give it to, to Chris. He'll play it or, so, you know, something like that. And so, you know, I spent a couple of weeks recording one song and it was the, really the best I could do. And then hearing it, you know, that sort of set up me to like want to do it forever after that one moment. That step of being like, oh, this is what it's also <laughs> you know like playing it over a club sound system and people are actually dancing on the floor to it you're like oh this is really interesting and then the first time you hear that you're like this works this doesn't work like there's not enough bass or whatever you know like it's such a different experience seeing people actually react to your music you know the funny thing about that era though was all that stuff that i was listening to that i listed that i you know that stuff was all so poorly produced and just incredibly <laughs> yeah, compressed, totally, totally. just so powerfully compressed that it it didn't really matter. And so the best I could do, it wasn't that much worse than any of that stuff. And so I didn't really learn that lesson until much later, but it was sort of just like it got my foot in the door with just the emotion of like, wow, like that's my thing. Like, oh my God, and I'm hearing it and I'm – getting to shuffle around self-consciously and just be at the club. And <laughs> yeah, it's like that meme where it's like, nobody at this party knows that I produced this track or whatever. You're like in the corner. Yeah. Exactly. Like the first time I heard my own music in the club, when Chris played it, I just got to be there and see people dancing and I got to dance. And then that's still the, the rush is like, oh, I get to sort of be playing it and people are dancing and it's, and I'm dancing and, what a fun, cool thing, I, you know, you get to experience. So, a hundred percent, Chris. Do you remember that moment that <laughs> when you played his track? <laughs> yeah, dude. Oh my god, <laughs> I think I might have it too, like on on video. Because I'm wow. Cause it, oh my god. Yeah, I had a, a camera that I brought to one one or two of those events. It's funny you mentioned the sound quality because, like, I feel like yeah, the sound quality of everything used to be so bad. Like, even in clubs and just shows and we just our standard of sound was just very low at the time <laughs> yeah yeah what was the the club sound system was like not so good <laughs> i don't even yeah it's like it would you know it would be like very close to just being overloaded and clipping and and a lot of times we would just like Oh, this was the this was the crazy part was that Morgan would have uh, this huge uh, speaker that he would roll around and we would use it for our monitoring, like the booth monitor, <laughs> yeah, like, like guitar amp or whatever. Like it was, uh, yeah. He used, he used to work for for Newmark, so it was some kind of like Newmark iPod speaker. And it sounded just so harsh. Like I think I got tinnitus DJing with all that equipment. I feel at least the the standard of sound systems, I think in general, has probably increased in the last twenty years. You know, and production. You know, there was a really low barrier to entry. There was like you could 
you could do such a bad sounding thing, but it would sound fine next to everything else. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, totally. over a bad club system. So it sort of all worked out and made you feel like you could do it. And now everything, the quality is so high. You're basically getting, you know, every, you know, drum machine or whatever already sounds so perfect straight out of the box. Really, all you have to do is like put the samples together and put a fucking rave stab on it, and you've got something amazing sounding, <laughs> like really good sounding. moved to new york 2011 yeah chris moved first i think yeah what yeah what year did you move chris to to the city uh 2000 well so i interned at a place after graduating in 2009 in new york so i was there for a little bit then and then i kind of did this back and forth thing in providence where i would stay in providence and then work in new york and uh was basically doing that until I stayed there like full time in like two like late 2010, early 2011, and uh, yeah, I mean I think Alex uh, DJ Richard had already moved. We I was trying to throw parties with a friend Dasul and Alvin, and also Morgan was kind of in on it too. We would like throw parties in Manhattan, like little small things. He was Korean. And so we found this spot in with the in K Town, like on the fifth floor of a of a business building, and we would do stuff there. And we did stuff at this place, uh, Lower East Side, called Stay. That had like a little like speakeasy basement. But so yeah, I was doing that, and also like going to bunker parties, like Resolute parties. Oh, also like Dope Jams and Mister Sunday, like when they were in Gowanus. Like, seeing all those parties made me want to get involved in music a little more, and I kind of just started, like, going to those more. And I felt, like, timing-wise, there was this momentum with, like, news and press. And I think they still had, like, a lot of influence over I don't think they're as as influential anymore. But they were, like, huge in breaking a lot of artists. um, And and just because they were living in Brooklyn, basically, you know. Like, they just kind of lumped everybody in, like, Brooklyn, electronic music. But it was cool to, it was still cool to find, find each other, though. Back then, there was still that kind of division between rock venues and dance parties. And I think, like, a lot of the parties were taking place in the same type of places, but, like, different crowds would show up. Like, the Resolute and the, and the Bunker parties were a little bougier, a little more European. But then there's, like, 285 Kent or, like, Death by Audio, like, places like that, where it's just kind of more, like, PBR, you know, drinking kind of crowds. But, like, I think now all that is mashed up now. But then it was a, it was a weird divide, and it was kind of hard to get one person to come to the other thing sometimes, you know? Like, uh, it would take some convincing to, like bring someone to a bunker party sometimes because they're just like, I don't want to hear like, you know, clean techno. I moved here a couple months before Bossa opened and I lived down the block from it. And so I remember going with like Danny Moore to like the first weekend it opened being like, it's the new place. Like, and wow. I was like, oh, this is cool. It's just like this crappy bar that has like loud techno. And I was, whether or not I would say like, I like it or not. It was definitely like an important place for a lot of people to like go and hang out and meet and that those kind of scenes coming together in a weird way. But I like for us, like before Bossa, there's this place, Steuben street. Yes. So like, did, did, did Eckhouse Lada live there or there was yeah. their studio or something? They lived there first and then it became their studio. Yeah. And then more people, more people kind of moved in and out and it was just a loft space in like 
like Clinton Hill area. No, no, Navy Yard. Navy Yard. Or Navy Yard, yeah. That was technically where the first white material party was. Like, that was, it was Alvin and a few other people built a DJ booth in that loft. And that loft, there were also, like, shows. So you'd have a party that would be, half the party would be, like, a, you know, a couple people DJing. And then there'd be like a stop in the action and somebody would do a performance where they're like pouring milk all over themselves and cutting themselves and something like pretty unusual. And especially for New York, New York was not that weird at the moment. New York was pretty stale. And the weirdest thing you're going to see really was like, like the strokes type shit, just like really kind of like traditional, you know, almost on some like, like troubadour still playing guitar and singing you're just you're still seeing dudes with moppy hair playing and singing. It, it, like to me, that feels so fucking old. It felt like it feels like Elizabethan or fucking like Renaissance bullshit. It's a guy with a guitar singing, and it's cool. I love that type of music, but it just felt like New York. You know, where's the weird? Where's the futuristic? Where the? But that had all been stomped out. You know, the only things that were going were like Pasha. It's like Pasha and just god awful like bottle service nonsense. And stuff, it's the reason why people hate dance music in this country, because they associate, well, there's a lot of reasons. But it's like, you know, like the worst of the worst, like the, the, the last place on earth that you want to end up on a weekend, and that was all that had, was left. And so then when I, the way I see is when I was going to Steuben Street, these are like friends, people I knew, but they were bringing performance they were bringing um unexpected they were bringing a little bit of the club but the loft it was like the reintroduction of anything could happen the floor could collapse and it did and like there's all kinds of like wild stuff like like i'm saying a performance where someone's like cutting themselves you know in the middle of the dance floor and then when that's done the dj starts up again (laughs) And like half the audience leaves and goes outside to talk and the other half starts dancing. I mean, I thought that for me, that was a pretty important moment, especially in New York. And, you know, I, not that I know everything, but bringing a little bit of Providence to, uh, to, to New York. That's how I sort of felt. Yeah. It was cool to see it. And, to, and I think the reason why those, po- uh, those parties were so popular is because it was, it wasn't your like bad club experience. It was, a warehouse with all the weird cool artists and designers and there were you know the other thing that was going on that was like really big that i know influenced me was ghetto gothic which and i think that those were also happening in warehouses and i'm seeing that and being like this is similar to me like this is like what i'm into and yeah and uh if if i remember from the parties i did go to the sound was god awful at all of those oh yes it was like the worst possible absolutely like horrendous ear splittingly bad but it was just like they still somehow felt futuristic totally i mean you know people could argue this they could say the club music isn't futuristic at all and i don't i don't care i don't care what they think i mean it still is like transgressive to have like a party in some weird basement and you're just listening to a loop of britney spears like for 20 minutes and like i do like when i look at all this stuff i i does still inspire me and i think it did inspire a lot of other people and i think you know i know like telfar dj'd those parties i know venus venus x physical therapy michael magnan arca you know like i was playing shows with arca then you know i still look back on it it still looks to me still looks futuristic and interesting and exciting and everyone from those eras has gone on to do their own little individual thing. And I remember going over to, I think you guys were both there at the, your place in like Clinton Hill or whatever with Ren Fort Green. before in Fort Green. That's right. And then before yeah. Ren played the boiler room with Pete Swanson, that right. day going to see that like on like Montrose or whatever. Like, yeah, I played that boiler room too. You played that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You got, and you guys went over, we went over together. That's right. Yeah, that's crazy. That's hellish. Crazy. <laughs> hellish experience. I, I, I carried the PA in. Like, <laughs> I, they told me to be there at one in the afternoon, and I got there at one in the afternoon, and nothing was set up. And oh. it, this is, uh, this is a fuck you to Charles Damga. Fuck you. You never did your job. 
You never should have been involved in music. <laughs> and I don't know where you are now, but fuck you, Charles Damga. I carried the PA in that day. I literally, like, I was supposed to play my first boiler room, and instead of having a nice experience, I carried the PA in, sweating. And then I went back to my house, met up with Ren, and then, yeah. Than like starting white material as uh, in 2012, I think. Yeah, if I'm correct. Um, and then uh, the first Goucher record was the. I did. I did a little. I did a little research earlier. I was like, just get my fact. It was the third <laughs> release on white material, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. No, you're right. <laughs> so I'm. I'm curious about that era. And then like, yeah. So this is your first, like, you know. Uh, physical release or whatever uh yeah chris as far as i as far as i know and then yeah you starting uh doing young male uh and then white material with alex and yeah i'm kind of i'm curious about that because that's you know the, the critical point so young male i started in rhode island okay so you were and it was an ambient project i was i was making ambient music um i'd found a sign a cardboard sign sitting outside of a mill building and the, it said almost exactly this word for word. On the sign it said, young male will pay you $200 to hit me with baseball bat 200 times and kick me in nuts 200 times. Come to yellow door and holler germ. <laughs> Thank you for saying so that. So that's Amazing. where the, the name came from, young male. And, I, you know, it was like instant, like, oh, my God, what an amazing cardboard sign. It was just cardboard with Sharpie written on it. And I was making ambient music. I just kept that name and I started making pretty corny uh, ripoffs of, like, Marauder and Eric Prids. And, and then when I was hearing what Chris was making and hearing other stuff, hearing, like, Levon Vincent, hearing Omar S., all stuff that Chris was really introducing me to, I was getting more interested in minimal and in like a Detroit type sound, you know? Um, and then I was also going to ghetto Gothic, going to bunker and being inspired still by rap and still by, um, like sort of a cross of all these sounds. And then I was going to bunker and then I'd come home, you know, six in the morning and I would, have the urge to like make tracks or try to recreate the feeling that I was feeling after seeing Marcel Detman play for six hours or seeing Sandwell District or Omar S or Steffi or um, like that generation basically of European American cross crossover artists, artists that were both playing, uh, they were playing both the U S and Europe and, who also had like a wide range of influences, but were way more established. But I'm seeing that and I'm like, I want to, you know, I have something to say is how I felt. And then I'm just like, I'm going to try to make what I'm going to try to make. And, um, the first sort of white material parties were at Steuben street where I would play like a 10 minute nine or nine set, you know, like take my shirt off, play nine or nine. And then when I'm done, I've seen you do that before. So I saw you the fitness basements. 2013, yeah, exactly. I think, or exactly. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yep. But so then, you know, the rest of the party would be like Morgan, Chris, Alvin, uh, Alex, all DJing. You know, I'd do like a 10-minute little thing. But, I, you know, the name just was like a... The name and the label sort of just came out of wanting to put out music and put out like a... Put out vinyl. I was getting obsessed with vinyl. I still had only like barely learned how to DJ just using Ableton. I think I'd started trying to do that in 2009 or eight. And then, you know, I was watching Chris learn in his bedroom, like learn on like pretty difficult to use turntables and then was getting into getting really into vinyl. And Alex and I would walk to Halcyon, take like a 30 minute walk to Halcyon, like 
in New York to go listen to whatever the new records were that week. And through that, I was like, I really, you know, I love the connection to like physical objects and I want to make something. And I'd always been like a creative artistic person or whatever. And so it made sense. And then I recorded all this shit on logic and took me forever just to make like three tracks and then like put it together came up with the name you know the name for me was always like i'm thinking like what's like a way to describe like a drug you know some like powder some something and it was also like an open ended thing you know people could creatively misinterpret it if they wanted um they could come up with whatever the hell they're thinking it it is but it sounded dangerous to me like white material like interesting and i i didn't know that there was like a a movie that had come out at that time or and Alex and I had been like searching for names, you know, we'd had this connection where we wanted to, you know, we're just always listening to music together. And, you know, I was seeing all of them DJing, becoming more interested in that aspect and sort of learning them teaching me, you know, it was Morgan and Chris really who taught me. So then Chris, you were of course DJing these parties and there and everything and still producing tracks that you're, playing out or whatever and then um yeah where did where did the the goucher goucher lust work project uh and like and name and just all of these things that you know you're i would say you're most most yeah. well known for now you know like yeah what was the sort of genesis of that so i think white material had already started and i didn't have that name but it was like it must have been like months later that I decided that that's the name I wanted to use for the rec- for when my record when it came. Goucher Lustworks sort of came from well, I found the name as a captcha online, so it was like a generative name, like sort of like the Wu Tang name generator, like a yeah, yeah, similar totally. situation. And I was just like super psyched on like Drexia and Doppler effect and and like. Uh, you know, Shari Vari and just this kind of like trying to be European or whatever, you know, like yeah. this like association. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of, and it kind of, I liked just how I was able to completely detach like my, my other life from it. Like I sort of treated it as a, its own project in that sense. Inspired by like Omar S and, I was really into like DJ Q and Joey Anderson, Fred P, Live On Too. And so like, yeah, like it was kind of just like the zeitgeist at the time. I don't know. That was just kind of what what I wanted to put out was. And I think I'd given Quinn and Alex like a, a batch of songs that they may have picked from. Because I was posting on SoundCloud like all the time and. So there were there were like snippets out, you know. Catch you when I catch you. Gotta keep in touch. Catch you coming down. I catch you going up. I see you when I see you. See you in the park. See you after dark. curious maybe just sort of at the early stages of our your modern life as musicians like what that sort of experience of like getting more and more attention and more and more like offers and things like that like what like what was that like for you guys for me it was like a dream come true and it was also torture it was like it destroyed relationships it you know there was so much i you know it's only really the last like few years where i've ever felt any amount of like actually anyone liking what I have done or do. And like at that time it was weird because I certainly didn't deserve the attention, but I didn't not deserve it. I wasn't doing that much less than most people. And I was like really putting so much effort into raising myself up and raising up my friends, just this like little group of people but the way that the the media always told my story without me getting to have any fucking say was like 
it was torture. The things that they said about me were untrue. The way I was like paint, the picture that was painted about me was, wasn't true. And it, it honestly like soured a lot of the experience. Cause here I'm like, I'm going up to some DJ that I was like psyched to play with. And they're like telling me like I'm some piece of shit. Cause like a record is too expensive. And it's like, like for one, the step from obscurity to having a few opportunities, it was so tiny compared to what a lot of people experience. It was like, I went from getting paid $20 and that would be a big, big victory for me to getting paid $300 to play in some shitty basement in Manchester that where like my gear, it's, it's the basement's flooding and I'm thinking like I've made it, but here like you can imagine it's like it was not all it was cracked up to be but i was lucky to have any of it and i think like right place right time right moment right sound led me there that's just like how i look at my own like i there's some people where the talent and the it's much bigger and i think for me it was just always a struggle struggle to finish anything and so going from nobody caring at all and to being the laughing stock of of the Rhode Island noise scene to then being to having a lot of those same people kissing my fucking ass wanting to put a record out where they didn't care about dance music and they never did but they just were like whoa you're getting attention and it's like I was getting the wrong attention and I I, I was still in a position where everyone people did not like what I was doing for one reason or the other and it was like people in Brooklyn were like saying like weird negative shit people in but the the people coming to the parties enjoyed it but it was like it was a weird feeling and it, it definitely left me i feel like i'm still getting over like the chip on my shoulder that that left whether it was like some enormous magazine with a a giant reach saying that like what i'm doing is not good or whether it was the scene in Rhode Island saying what I'm doing is not good. And, but here I am and most of them do not exist anymore. Most of them are not making music. Most of them have gone on to become like whatever alcoholic, whatever miserable human that they always were. And I'm still doing this shit. And I don't know, it wasn't pleasant. It really was like, there's, there were moments, there were moments of like true bliss, like playing on a boat in Croatia as the sun is setting and then getting to hear like Chris play sustained release. That's still like one of my favorite moments I've ever experienced. And people still come up to me that I meet and say like, Oh, like gals last work, sustained release, like second year, you know? And so there's moments it's weird. It's a weird, um, dichotomy of like true misery and like some of my best friends ever coming to be like enemies but then also it's like, well, I'm going to follow this dream and I'm not going to let go because some like snobby Brooklyn asshole is telling me what I do is not good. You know, so it was weird. I wish it, I wish I could say it was like everything that I'd ever wanted, but it was, it was hellish. And then moments were like truly beautiful going to Europe for the first couple of times. I never thought I would ever go to Europe, you know. Um, but then doing it and getting paid and making this music that so many people had told me was not good, you know, every step of the way, every fucking step of the way. And I still feel like I'm like recovering. Also, continue just to Chris. I was. I'm just curious about like what your experience with that early after the first record and like you know whatever like getting becoming you know the the international the internationally acclaimed star you are today. You know. I mean, it felt like it kind of like it kind of like all happened so fast. I don't know. Like it kind of like I really also wanted to like bring 
my friends up with me and in in a lot of circumstances that like wasn't possible i don't know i it was like a combination of a little bit being being selfish but also being wanting not wanting to lose friends over shit you know so like just like it felt just like life like honestly it just felt like i was living life and all this other crap was happening and like i was anxious about the internet and self-destructive with my social media and uh you know that was kind of how i manifested my like distaste with everything but like i'm super grateful for all the traveling and the people and like it's tight that that we're all still homies even though like a lot of like morgan's kind of exiled in Rhode Island and Alvin's out in California but um yeah it all happened so fast and i just wish i wish like it were easier to yeah like correct the narratives that had been like going around cuz it really did feel kind of just like a gossip girl type world at that time like soundcloud facebook pre instagram like it was just like there wasn't anything going you know anything like stopping people from just being like assholes and like a grand stage so yeah i don't know it's just it, i'm i i just felt like it it all just kind of like went and i i didn't really try and control it too too much you know just try to go with the flow of everything yeah i'm still trying to do the thing you know just trying to make a living <laughs> exactly we all got a job man <laughs> i guess before uh we wrap it up uh is there any any last thoughts, whatever that you wanted to include, set the record straight, et cetera, et cetera, before we sign off? I want to say fuck Charles Damga too. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> fuck you, Charles Damga. <laughs> That's what I really want. Yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you broke the ice with that. I have a re- request. <laughs> when, Drop the yeah. DJ Clue bomb. Or I mean uh, the the Punk Master Flex bomb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Every time it says That's it. exactly what I was gonna request. An air horn or like or yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. or guns firing when <laughs> definitely I, I would just like to say that like for me the the real like value and like the the thing that like keeps me in love with the music is like the other musicians that I've met and like, they keep bringing me back and they keep inspiring me. And when I think I'm like, when I think I've had it and I'm toasted, I go see Chris play or I see Mike Servito play, or I see, you know, you name it, some, some other person from New York, or I hear somebody from here's mix or something, you know, something. And it just keeps, it keeps pulling me back. And I feel like those people that I've met and the music that they've made, it's like this weird infinite uh, source of inspiration. And that's been like the real prize. Like I now, you know, like I go out almost anywhere I go. It's like, I get to go usually for free and I get to like be like re-upped. It's like, it's like a drug and it's like, it's a, endlessly renewable resource for some reason now and i think it's just like i like i'm i'm not a young man anymore <laughs> you know i'm not i'm people always say like they see me and they're like oh you're like middle-aged male <laughs> and it's like <laughs> yo i've been doing this for a long time the hate never stops man you know i feel re- i feel beloved at this point that's the cool Hell thing yeah. but the yeah. real the real like prize with all of it is like meeting these other musicians from around the world you know i've had some I've gotten to meet like my heroes and have them tell me that they're there to see me. And then I get to be friends with them and then I get to see them play into perpetuity. And it's like that, that never really occurred to me that that would happen or was going to happen. And I feel like it's, it's like this crazy blessing and, um, and I still get to party. Like I, I'm still, I'm, I party more than I play now and, and I love it. And it, it really, I wish I could accurately describe the feeling, but, you know, going to party and watching Chris play, it's, it almost like makes me feel like I'm a, a kid again. It takes me back, like brings me back to those moments where I'm like, I want to do this. And uh, it happened last weekend watching Chris play. So That's, that's beautiful. <laughs> Hell yeah. So I, in conclusion, fuck Charles Damga and uh, 
There's nothing more important than your friends. And uh, the other musicians out there. Uh, I love you, Quinn. Love you, Chris. Hell yeah. <laughs> That's what's up. Well, thank you guys very much. And uh, I'll, I'll see, I hope to see you guys soon. Thanks to Chris and Quinn for joining me to speak about their lives and work. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to 400 Floor wherever you get your podcasts. To hear the raw and uncut version of this episode, plus much more bonus material, you can purchase it at 400floor.com. That's the number 400 and the word floor.com. 400 Floor is a podcast produced by Nina Protocol, where two musicians pair up to talk about their roots individually and together and reflect on the communities that shape them. We'll be back in a few weeks with another deep dive. Thanks for listening. Thank you.